Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great, Anne. How are you? Good, good. Hey, today we have a couple of guests. Uh, we have two, uh, one uh, surgical resident and a surgeon who we're going to talk to regarding the new Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Protocol number 34 on breast cancer and breastfeeding. Should be interesting, huh? I'm super impressed by this new protocol. Yeah, absolutely. So we have Dr. Katrina Mitchell, who is a breast surgeon and lactation consultant in the, uh, at the Ridley Tree Cancer Center at San, Sansom Clinic in Santa Barbara, California, and Dr. Helen Johnson, who is a resident in the Department of Surgery at the Brody School of Medicine in East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Hi, Katrina, and hi, Helen. How are you? Hi. Thanks, hi, for, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for, yeah, this is going to be a great discussion. Uh, so I had so many questions. Um, I, I love doing your protocol. I think this is uh, just such a stellar piece of work that is new and is going to benefit so many people, not only families, but also um, uh, uh, oncologists, surgeons, and uh, pediatricians, family doctors, anyone who really works with women who uh, are struggling with breast cancer newly diagnosed. So first, I thought we would start by just talking about screening. Um, so um, I know that there are a lot of recommendations out there about breast cancer screening. And can you just talk about that? Because when, I, when my patients ask me, especially when they're like 40, 41, they ask, should I have uh, a mammogram? Should I have breast cancer screening? I say, yeah, sure. Like, it's not really clear between 40 and 45. And I wonder about this specifically because that's going to be the age that if you're going to see women of like your average woman of age who would be ready for breast cancer, breast cancer screening, they would be in that age group, right? Because they're not as likely to be over 45 and be uh, breastfeeding. Right. I think that's actually the, that's a great point to bring up because all of the life years or the majority of the life years saved in breast cancer treatment saved by screening is in the 40 to 49 year old age group. So all of the cancer societies in terms of the society of, or the breast, the breast specific societies, society of breast surgeons, society of breast imagers, American College of Radiology, all agree that women should be screened yearly beginning at the age of 40. And that exactly, it's the highest risk group. So if you want to fall off of the screening recommendations, I think it's safer to fall off at the end of the spectrum. You know, in your 80s, we say stop screening 10 years before um, your life expectancy. But even still, I've certainly dealt with patients on that end of the spectrum that had they had a triple negative breast cancer diagnosed on a screening mammogram, it could have been a simple lumpectomy um, instead of something that's eroding through the skin eventually because it wasn't, wasn't ever picked up on a mammogram. And then that becomes a much more difficult palliative situation. So yeah. Yeah. Topic, yeah. yeah. I make sure I check those, my, the breasts of my 94 year old women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then if, so if a woman is, um, 
breastfeeding and she's 41, uh, someone should be talking to her about breast cancer screening, right? Because I wonder if some of these women are not really talking to anyone about that. They're not coming in for their annual physicals because they're like seeing OB, but then they're only seeing them during pregnancy and then sometime once postpartum and then going back to their primaries. And so do you think that that's not being caught uh, for, you know, something, do you think that that's being addressed for women when they're seeing their OB? I think we get a lot of questions about that. Um, and so there are a lot of questions by OBGYNs, midwives, and primary care doctors who are like family medicine doctors, for example, who are taking care of pregnant women. So I don't know that it's widespread knowledge. And we actually have another publication in the Green Journal um, hoping to target a lot of the OBGYNs to give them more information about breast cancer screening. And, you know, one of the things that I think of when we're talking about this is that I remember when I learned that you have an increased risk of breast cancer um, around the time of pregnancy that is somewhat elevated but diminishes over the following five years. And so, you know, those women who are, you know, in that time frame when they're they're lactating, I, I'm... I'm that changed the way that I thought about them and whether or not screening was important. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but do you think, um, do you think it's possible that we could be seeing later diagnoses uh, among women who are in that childbearing age because they are not getting their screening done? Do you think that I, it would be interesting to see if there's any publication on that? Um, I don't know the literature at all on delayed diagnosis for breast cancer. We, d- we did used to think that the survival was different and generally outcomes different um, because we thought it was related to a delay in diagnosis of these patients. And I think certainly as people are having babies later and breastfeeding later in life, the, the screening question is going to come up more and more, particularly as we know more about genetic mutations too that warrant earlier screening, earlier than the age of average risk screening, which begins at 40. Um, but now we actually think that the controlling stage for stage, so if you are diagnosed with a stage two cancer, um, whether that was screen detected or not, um, that it's actually the postpartum nature of a breast cancer occurring during that period of inflammation and macrophage infiltration of the breast and all that lymphangiogenesis that is going to promote the increased risk for metastatic spread and recurrence in these patients. So I think there's probably lots of different factors at play. Certainly it's not helping if people, a large group of high-risk patients isn't getting screened, but um, there's also a lot of tumor biology that's, that's going into it as well. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's um, go on and talk about... Um, a history for w- women who have a history of breast cancer. Um, so one thing that you mentioned is that let's say a woman had a mastectomy and so then she's going to nurse from one side. There's a mention in the protocol about her having a risk of insufficient milk from the, from the one breast related to previous chemotherapy. There are uh, several studies that show that women who have received chemotherapy, especially during pregnancy, do have uh, lower milk production compared to women that did not receive chemotherapy. So even if they have an intact breast on one side, they may have a you know, lower uh, 
um, total you know, lactational ability on that side. So even if they had the chemotherapy before they became pregnant? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's all related to the fact that our chemotherapy agents target breast tissue specifically, right? There's a wide variety of immunotherapy at this point and chemotherapeutic agents that, that it's going to, by nature, decrease proliferative, target proliferative tissue in the breast. So, hmm. You know, this is so interesting to me because, you know, I haven't had a lot of women with history of breast cancer who have breastfed, but of those who I've had, they've actually made a lot of milk. And Katrina, you and I have talked before about whether hyperlactation could be associated with the risk of breast cancer. And I hate to say that, but, you know, because I don't, I hate to see you do this idea in other people's heads, but I've only seen really abundant milk from those breasts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, maybe, maybe you're talking about abundant milk from the breasts of of untreated, the untreated breast, because if the person yes. had radiation, honestly, that's really going to impact, um, impact a lot of the, a huge amount of the milk production and skin elasticity. But um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely followed a number of BRCA mutation patients with really, really significant hyperlactation. And it just makes you wonder if there's inability to downregulate cellular prol- proliferation. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I also hesitate to um, to uh, make statements like that, like people asking if, if mastitis increases the risk of breast cancer. And, you know, yeah, just... yeah. But then the thing is that some women um, have, if they have mastitis, we currently in one area, and that's, this is sort of off topic in a way, but women who have recurrent mastitis in one area um, or recurrent like mammary dysbiosis in one area, I have seen those women eventually show up with a cancer in that region. And so whether or not there was some ductal issue going on during lactation, that was sort of like, you know, the compression know, or, you know, like ductal stenosis or something. I don't know. I mean, I, I think if anything, I don't think compression or stenosis, it's not like an anatomic factor. I think it could possibly be related to, I mean, if you really wanted to speculate, you know, some kind of stasis in that region with microbiome changes in that region. And we know that a lot of cancer or we're starting to have a better understanding of how cancer is related to disruptions in the microbiome and things like pancreatic cancer. Um, Or it could be possibly related to a very, very early introductal growth. But Yeah, that's what I was suggesting when I... Mm-hmm. I think um, the the other thing, I, at the same time, you can say, you know, I've had breast cancer patients that were, had recurrent mastitis in the contralateral breast and then end up with the breast that didn't have any problems having the breast cancer. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So let's say that a woman has a history of breast cancer and she has a low supply and we're talking about galactagogues. You mentioned in here about the risk of galactagogues for women with a history of breast cancer or to be cautious. Can you talk more about that? I think many of these agents are phytoestrogens and so they function to stimulate breast tissue, which can be a little problematic from an oncologic perspective, but there's really not a lot of high level data on this yet. So phytoestrogens for those who are listening would be plant-based estrogens. 
And so those plant-based estrogens also found in things like soy and uh, yams and some other foods that we eat, uh, you're saying can stimulate the, the estrogen receptors. Is that right? I think yes, but the, the degree to which they do so is different between phytoestrogens naturally occurring in foods that we consume in very concentrated forms like we would take for galactagogues. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I think you could argue that the, the phytoestrogens theoretically could be helpful because we know that they're possibly competing with our um, um, endogenous estrogen, and that's why they actually work to increase milk production. But at the same time, anyone that has a history of breast cancer, we never um, advocate that they use, like Helen said, supplement level hydro, uh, phytoestrogens because we just don't know how it's going to possibly stimulate a cancer recurrence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those would be, so some phytoestrogens, uh, so Karen helped me with this, but like fenugreek, and uh, moringa is a phytoestrogen. Chadavari is a phytoestrogen. So really a lot of them, things like, uh, I don't know about gotru, certainly you could I use I think gotru is not yeah. a different mechanism. Yeah, metformin you could use because that's just improving insulin resistance. Um, but yeah, I guess you'd have to be really careful. But then there's another comment in there about using something like domperidone or metoclopramide because it raises prolactin and that we'd want to avoid hyperprolactinemia, although that kind of defines the lactational state anyway. <laughs> but you had mentioned avoiding things like domperidone and metoclopramide. Yeah, I think anytime you're, you're doing some super physiologic stimulation, I think you just have to be really careful in the setting of a known cancer history and possibility of recurrence, because we just don't, we just don't know. I see. All right. So let's say that um, breast cancer is found during pregnancy. Um, can you just walk us through like how you counsel a woman comes to you and she's pregnant and she has been found to have a biopsy proven cancer? What, tell me like what, as a professional, what, how you counsel, particularly regarding uh, breastfeeding? I guess that's a little tricky because it all depends on exactly how far along she is um, in her pregnancy. It depends on the stage of her cancer, depends on other risk factors for recurrence. Um, I don't know if there's a succinct way to do that. Do you have, do you have a, a succinct way, Katrina? <laughs> uh, so yes, I think every case is individualized. I mean, I could you know, think of the patients that I've had in this situation. And most often, I think if you're working in breastfeeding medicine, you may be the person that's actually diagnosing the cancer. That's, that's one consideration that someone, my most recent uh, pregnancy associated breast cancer patient came to me um, for a question of a, a plug when she was pregnant and breastfeeding an older older child. Um, so, you know, starting from that, that's a kind of situation where I call up the radiologist and I say, you know, um, can you get this person in for imaging and a biopsy now? Um, because I think you have to assume some kind of persistent plug when a mom is a couple of years postpartum is, you know, it's not a plug <laughs> until you, um, it's something else. So I think that's a first step. And then, you know, you have to sometimes take the breast. I mean, the breastfeeding is always there in the background, but you have to treat the cancer first. So you have to make sure you are not letting your 
self be so distracted by the, the presence of breastfeeding that you're not doing what you normally would do for a patient like this. So for example, triple negative breast cancer, a lot of these younger women that have these palpable masses will have a, a more aggressive, fast growing tumor like a triple negative breast cancer. So, um, you know, you have to work with the OB and decide where the patient is in pregnancy. And if they're within a few weeks of delivery, they may move up the, um, the delivery by a week or two. Um, and then I talk to them, you know, there's obviously a huge amount going on at the time of a diagnosis like this, not to mention a new baby on the way. Um, but I try to tell people to take one step at a time. We want to treat the cancer right. And um, so let's just say the person is going to have chemotherapy. They get delivered maybe a little bit early. Um, I let them breastfeed. And while we're getting all the workup for chemotherapy, a lot of times these patients need to be staged. Um, they need an echocardiogram before starting chemotherapy labs. Um, and so we generally start chemotherapy about three weeks after delivery to allow for healing from delivery. And I let them breastfeed during that time and then, you know, start making plans about donor milk um, and then a weaning plan because if they're very early postpartum, um, you know, I'll often give these women cabergeling because if they have an ample milk production, it's going to, you know, need to be dropped somewhat precipitously because you don't want them to be engorged at the start of chemotherapy and they're stopping and then they're, you know, at risk for plugging in mastitis while they're trying to pump and decrease their production. Mm -hmm. Then the, the cabergoline is the obviously the medication that drops the prolactin level that um, causes basically no lactation because <laughs> there's no more prolactin. Yeah, got it. So what about women? Um, so you had mentioned about women who have a type of breast cancer where it's recommended that they have a bilateral mastectomy and a woman says, okay, I'll have one, I'll have the mastectomy on the affected side during pregnancy, but I want to wait and breastfeed from the other breast first before uh, having that other breast removed. Is that okay for some women to do? So it's not the type of breast cancer that if, unless you have a bilateral breast cancer involving both breasts, which is possible. It's a fact that people have may have a gene mutation that's diagnosed that increases their risk of a future breast cancer in the I other see. breast I down see. the road. Okay. okay. And so then is it okay for her to make that decision? Like, do you advise that she not make that decision, but rather have the, the bilateral mastectomy, have the other, have it done at the same time? Well, I think also this goes back to cancer care and what we're learning about inflammatory aspects of big surgeries and whether it's wise in general just to operate on the cancer side and then come back for a totally normal breast rather than having the patient on the table for you know a bilateral mastectomy. If she's larger, that's gonna take longer. She may need some axillary surgery, reconstruction. Those end up as very long surgeries. And we have the, you know emerging literature on an inflammation and metastatic spread related to big surgery. So um, I think it's the risk of a contralateral cancer is going to increase down the road, but within those first few years of a woman that wants to complete childbearing, um, you know, that risk is going to be quite low. And in the setting of gene mutations that um, 
increase the risk of other cancers, for example, BRCA, it's going to, you know, your risk of having an ovarian cancer rather than a contralateral breast cancer is going to be, be higher. So I think it's really important to talk to patients about the, um, about the risks of, of not being able to breastfeed, formula feeding, and treating the, treating the, the cancer itself. Because there's also not a, a survival benefit to bilateral mastectomy, except in the setting of BRCA, which it trends towards survival. But again, you have to take a step back and think about the risk of ovarian cancer and the risks of many other aspects of not breastfeeding for that child and the mom. Mm -hmm. Wow, there's a lot to think about, that's for sure. Um, okay, uh, this may sound a little paranoid, but um, you know, you hear these stories about babies who start to refuse a breast because you know that you have to think about there being breast cancer. I do get those questions once in a while. And uh, do you think there's anything to that? Like, is it unsafe to? Do you want to share with people your thoughts about like, is it unsafe for a baby to be nursing from a breast? that could have breast cancer? And is it really true that they can detect breast cancer? I don't, I definitely don't think there's any evidence that it's not safe. And I think it reminds me of those questions from people that is it safe to feed a baby from a breast with mastitis? You know, won't they ingest the bacteria and get sick? And it kind of reminds me of, of that. I mean, the stomach acids are going to neutralize a lot of things and you're not going to be able to ingest the cancer cells and get systemic cancer from that or anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I thought we were just kind of sure to make that clear out there for yeah. everyone. But I'm yeah. sure it crosses yeah. everyone's mind, even if they know all of the medicine and the science behind it. I'm sure it's just a natural instinct to protect your baby, you know? Yeah. yeah. I always remind people, too, that the cancer was growing all along. You know, it, it's not like suddenly at the moment of diagnosis, it, it's unsafe that it takes a long time for these cancers to develop, even the fast growing ones, so. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's uh, now talk about women who are postpartum who are diagnosed with breast cancers. Uh, you had mentioned something about some of the procedures that are actually done in the breast for like during the surgery that may affect lactation, like dyes and scans. Can you talk about that? There's there's not, you know, a lot of data on any of this, but I think for the for the axillary surgery is when you would be using dyes to identify your sentinel lymph node um, if that's what your if that's part of your procedure. Um, and then is that dye safe? So let's say that she's having a lumpectomy during lactation. Uh, what are some considerations there? Like with that dye, for example. I, I mean, I think it's that we, we just don't have a lot of data about direct ingestion of these. It's, so it's not just blue dye, but it's, um, uh, but it's also technetium. So uh, uh, radionucleotide um, tracer. And we know that it, the technetium is likely not absorbed by the infant. We just don't have any information about injecting that directly into the breast and um, then having a baby ingest it. I mean, we know mm -hmm. that if you have that injected for um, a scan or, you know, many of these um, tracers injected for scans that very little is excreted in the breast milk, but we just don't have a lot of information about um, what happens when you inject it directly into the breast mm -hmm. and then a baby ingests it. So that goes, that goes for the blue dyes as well. 
So then maybe they should hold off or like pump and dump for a while um, for a certain period of time, um, knowing that those things are cleared. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the kind of pump and dump exceptions aside from chemotherapy too, that, um, you know, it probably would be reasonable just given that we're, those things are being injected directly into the breast parenchyma. Um, and yeah, I think, I think if you could feed on the contralateral breast, the other reason why I'm hesitating because so few of these patients that are diagnosed in the postpartum period, I mean, unless you do have moms that are getting their screening mammograms and something very early is detected like a DCIS that wouldn't actually involve, you know, that's a stage zero breast cancer that's not going to involve any axillary surgery anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in the setting of partial mastectomy or, or breast breast conservation, but, um, you know, DCIS, if you're having a mastectomy, you would do axillary surgery that kind of gets into it more detail, but, um, you know, most of these cancers are going to be, um, larger and more aggressive. And very often if you're kind of going again, by trying to treat the mom outside of breastfeeding in terms of treating the cancer, well, you, um, a lot of these moms are going to have had chemotherapy prior to surgery. So they, would have probably weaned for chemotherapy anyway. So a lot of this becomes kind of secondary in terms of level of concern and frequency of this, this occurring. But I think it's a situation where um, you probably want to be a little bit more conservative just given that we just don't, we don't have a lot of information. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense that they probably need to get chemo first. So let's talk about chemo um, for these women postpartum. I have heard some stories about women who have really tried desperately to stay lactational during chemotherapy for breast cancer. Um, it seems like a lot of these chemotherapy agents are pretty aggressive and obviously we wouldn't want babies exposed to some of these chemotherapies, right? Yeah, there's a, a lot of risk to the baby with the majority of the chemotherapy agents used for breast cancer um, and so you know, giving the baby breast milk while undergoing chemotherapy is, is contraindicated for basically all of them um, for kind of traditional breast cancer therapies. But some women have, you know, tried to maintain milk production throughout chemotherapy. Um, and, you know, there is certainly a, a risk of their milk production decreasing during that time, despite their best efforts. And then after waiting a certain time period after finishing chemotherapy, it could be safe to feed the milk again. But that requires a lot of, you know, multidisciplinary discussion and consultation with an oncologic pharmacist. You know, we, you would maybe consider talking to infant risk and things like that. Uh, we do have a table in the protocol that kind of gives some half-lives of some common chemotherapy agents or their metabolites to give a sense of kind of how challenging that might be. Yeah. There's also the concern about what if these mothers who are neutropenic get uh, mastitis? So it seems like they could be more at risk for sepsis and Absolutely. getting sick. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely another concern. So that's why you, know, you have to be really mindful. Um, when if, if a patient decides to do that, they should be really closely followed and which should really make sure that the pump settings are correct and the flange fit is correct, or if they're hand expressing that their technique is appropriate to really avoid any nipple trauma that could, you know, increase their risk of mastitis when they're neutropenic. Mm -hmm. 
That's got to be a really hard conversation with women. Katrina, have you had conversations with women who you've encouraged to wean postpartum who really didn't want to or had a hard time making that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of women are um, scared enough that they just say, I want zero complication. I want, you know, I really, you know, I want to treat this cancer. But, you know, I've also had lots of women, you know, I mean, most women, right, if they really wanted to breastfeed um, or are currently breastfeeding, it's a huge, huge loss and it's devastating. And I think it's like any other situation where a mom really wanted to breastfeed and there's some reason why, you know, she's really has severe hypolactation or, you know, there's other, other, other factors um, that, you know, is just helping her mourn the, the loss of, of breastfeeding. And, you know, I've definitely, I've had patients that, um, you know, said, I am not, you know, talk through the chemo and all the breast cancer conversations. Okay. And then actually just really like the hardest part, like the, the most emotion is related to the loss of breastfeeding, particularly if they breastfed other kids. And this is something that they anticipated in terms of mothering this baby. Um, I think that's so, it's so, it's heartbreaking, honestly. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's so important to counsel people that, so they make informed decisions about risk and benefit because really the risk of mastitis ending up in the hospital while neutropedic, I mean, you can see to port if you're bacteremic, you know, that ends up with that complication. I think it's, you have to think about a baby going to the breast and very short intervals, what happens if a baby refuses the breast? Does the mom, does that make her feel worse? You know, will the baby even go to, you know, if it does nurse and then taking in the breast away again from the baby, that repeated sort of intermittent breastfeeding, um, the effect of chemotherapy and the microbiome and the fact that it's going to make that proliferative breast tissue shut down on purpose. And so maintaining milk production, it's inevitable that the volume is going to decrease, um, you know, and again, just the risks of plugging a mastitis with, with pumping rather than breastfeeding. So um, again, you just, I think you really have to focus on saving mom first and helping with her grief. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, trying to find productive ways of, you know, looking for donor milk. And it's sad. I mean, there's, there's just no way around it. Unfortunately, it's really, really hard. Well, and I think that part of the reason that this protocol is so useful when I was reading it was I was like, there are so many different groups that need this information, right? And so, I didn't realize until I read it that, you know, there might be women who were diagnosed early in their pregnancy who got some chemotherapy and then stopped during their third trimester and then finished after they delivered. And they might be doing chemotherapy for a pretty short time after, you know, their three weeks postpartum where they might want to continue. But thinking about that, like, okay, a baby who's four months old who hasn't breastfed for two months might not go back to the breast. So she may be able to maintain her supply and then give pumped milk later. Is that worth it versus giving donor milk? I had a, when I was really early out of residency, a mom I took care of in the hospital who had had a double mastectomy between her two pregnancies who came to the hospital with donor milk from her sister 
And, you know, the nurses were like losing their mind because there was, you know, somebody else's milk in the room with her and trying to sort all that out. But allowing surgeons to think a little bit about this for young cancer patients, I think is really important because it may not be that they, you know, have thought in the past about this mom who has breast cancer, obviously you're focusing on her survival and it may not change your therapy to say this chemotherapy may cause you to have a low supply in the future with your next child, but it is still useful information for her to have so that she doesn't bebop along, have that second baby, assume she has milk because breastfeeding went fine the first time and then gets into a situation with a lot of weight loss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just all the women who've had breast reductions where the surgeon said, it'll be fine. Yeah. Well, that's where, I mean, I, I appreciate this protocol uh, that women with a history of breast cancer actually have that prenatal counseling with a breastfeeding medicine specialist. Um, this is something that we all need to learn more about uh, and look at numbers and see, you know, be able to give some numbers to these women prenatally to tell them, you know, what, what they can expect, but also that anticipatory guidance about like, if your supply is low, you know, here's how to get off to a good start. What I do, if I have a mother who I'm seeing prenatally who is at risk for low supply, I give a letter to them and have them present that letter at the hospital to say, you know, this is from Dr. Eglash, you know, um, I, you know I, I just, you know, write, please be aware that this mother is at risk for low supply. So, you know, trying to avoid things like, oh, your baby's getting mad at the breast, here's a nipple shield. No, wait, they don't want to go to the breast because they're mad because they want more colostrum and let's, you know, make sure that mom is pumping and make sure that the baby's been supplemented and not just throw a nipple shield at, at the situation. So. Um, making sure that these women are advocated for. That's great, Anne. You should share that letter with the IABLE listserv. I think that's helpful in general. And I mean, I can't, that's awesome too, Karen, you're um, the patient that came with her donor milk. I mean, that means someone identified the situation during pregnancy, counseled her, and she had a plan you know, instead of, I think, I think she is the one who figured it out. She's a (laughs) smart lady, but, but I mean, this goes to my like constant drumbeat of why are we not assessing all pregnant women for their risk for hypolactation? I really think that we need a good screening tool um, to, to, you know, just ask that question. Did your breasts grow? Did you previously have surgery? Did you have diabetes, infertility, you know, all those things. Um, and a measure of, of uh, glandular growth during pregnancy. That's my big drumbeat right now is that we have a tool <laughs> like ultrasound or MRI tool where we can actually measure like the percent change in breast tissue and, and actual mass of that glandular tissue. That's kind of like, if I could get that done before I die. Mine's cheap though. We could, mine, we are going to do mine first. <laughs> Um, Okay, so one last thing. Okay, so I had a patient recently who had breast cancer when she was fairly young. She was 26 when she was diagnosed. And I saw her with her first baby for mastitis in her her, um, non-affected breast. So she had radiation, lumpectomy and radiation on her affected side. So that's alactational, that breast isn't working. And then from the one breast, she's making plenty of milk. And she was, we were talking about duration of breastfeeding, and she said that she felt a little pressure from her oncologist to get back on her tamoxifen. And um, so she had been, I think, on it for two years and then went off to have the baby. And it was a decision that she made. She didn't get pregnant accidentally, but really wanted to start a family. 
And um, so can you talk more about that? There's actually a randomized control trial underway right now called the positive trial that looks exactly at that. So in women with hormone receptor positive breast cancers, like those that express estrogen or progesterone, who have an indication for adjuvant endocrine therapy, um, after they've taken at least 18 months of it, they're eligible for the trial for stopping it for a, a period for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So hopefully mm -hmm. we'll get some really great data from that that can give us some more numbers so that patients can make more informed decisions. Um, and mm -hmm. it's, it's supported by some European guidelines at this time. So then um, in terms of like real life situations, if for someone who's not in the protocol, uh, would you say, uh, Katrina, that women are being counseled that, okay, give it like a certain period of time, like, like what Helen said, you know, 18 months, two years um, on the um, hormone, I guess, what do you call those? Endocrine, like, endocrine, endocrine therapy. Okay, endocrine therapy. Um, that, you, that they should be on a certain period of time and then they do have sort of the permission or, you know, what's the term? They're being allowed to um, go off for, go off for a period of time. Right? <laughs> and, then how long, and then how long does the doctor sweat it out? You know, how long do they, are they willing to say, okay, you can do this for X amount of time? Well, Ginger Borges at Colorado, she's part of that, that group, and that you shared that really great um, lymphangiogenesis paper about postpartum breast cancer. Um, she, I think, tends to, and this is not really written anywhere, but uh, you know, in clinical conversations with her, I think she tends to have people breastfeed for six months and then start a conversation about resuming um, endocrine therapy in these really high-risk patients. But then again, that just gets into, do we know the protective aspects of, of ovarian suppression with breastfeeding, you know, the, the gradual weaning and how that may protect the breast? I mean, we just, we just don't know. But in a vacuum, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to make any surgical oncologist, any medical oncologist, anyone working in oncology nervous to have people interrupt therapy. I mean, that's why it's important to have trials to understand if it actually may be safe. But, um, you know, I think also too, you probably aren't going to give someone, you know, allow, give permission, you know, it's, I think it's more like the question of informed um, decision and yeah, counseling. Um, but, you know, you want to make sure, I think a patient is, is probably, especially with a high risk cancer is doesn't have a recurrence early, you know, so like a year is probably a little bit, um, you know, once you get past that 18 months to two years mark, that's, um, uh, you know, maybe makes people feel a little bit safer, but also breast cancers are going to recur in different ways in different people. So based on tumor biology and, you know, triple negative breast cancers and HER2 positive breast cancers tend to recur early and estrogen positive tumors tend to recur later. So a lot of this is, you know, a lot of unknowns too, because mm -hmm. it's, we're just starting to learn more about these pregnant and postpartum patients and their risk of recurrence. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. I want to, I just want to bring up that issue of weaning because you had, you know, we um, had, I sent you that article about like the changes that happen in the breast with weaning and there's a lot of inflammation and there's this mess, mess this, mentioned about how there's all these factors that create angiogenesis like 
creation of new capillaries and new lymphatic tissue. And so the cancer cells kind of like hijack the new small lymphatic channels and then escape and allow, and it allows for metastasis of the breast cancer cells. And so are you suggesting that maybe those of us who practice breastfeeding medicine should, if we're able, if we have the ability to counsel these women who have a history of breast cancer or um, have, or for some reason they're at increased risk of having cancer recurrence, that they should be weaning quickly. Like we should be dropping their prolactin levels quickly, kind of get it done quickly versus slowly. I mean, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I, yeah, I don't know if Helen has it. I mean, it's really interesting basic science. I think we still have a lot to learn. Um, I don't think we, we know the answer to that, but I guess it physiologically may make sense to wean in a physiologic way gradually rather than abruptly. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would agree with that. Just to reduce inflammation, so it's not as inflammatory. Just kind of gradually have less and less milk. Yeah. And yeah, so to, like, there's a, you... a difference between like an abrupt weaning in terms of, you know, without medications versus with, I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, certainly like if I give someone, you know, cabergoline to wean, it's, uh, they don't go through like a lot of, you know, like fullness and inflammation and uh, discomfort, warmth, things like that. Whereas some women, will call me and say, oh yeah, I just weaned. It was really hard. Like I just wore this really tight bra and they were so uncomfortable and terribly red. And like, oh my gosh, you do not need to do that. You can definitely call me, we can figure out another way. And so we want to avoid that kind of toughing through mm -hmm. a difficult situation. Yeah. All right. This was super helpful. Anything else? Any closing remarks, Karen? You got any questions? I was thinking, Anne, of your um, your letter that you give that I'd now like to see a copy of because I think that'd be useful. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that too, I think would be really helpful for these patients going to a reproductive endocrinologist. So if they're talking about freezing their eggs prior to chemotherapy, that's a situation to bring up the fact that the you know, breastfeeding is part of the reproductive cycle. That's what I talk to, to patients about. And if you're going to go through the trouble of freezing your eggs and you definitely plan to have kids post chemo, then you should be thinking about how you're going to feed your baby and whether the same way that people, you know, infertility is a loss for these patients that, that don't do egg preservation and then have, you know, trouble getting pregnant later. But the same thing as the, the loss of breastfeeding, as we talked about, you know, causes so much grief. And um, I think it'd be helpful for reproductive, um, you know, the reproductive endocrinologist, just everyone to uh, that. It's a whole different topic, but if they could hand out those letters and say, you know, you have struggled with fertility and you may have some trouble with um, breast milk production, that letter would be so helpful to have everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, that's true for both these breast cancer patients, but just for, you know, patients who are seeing the OB fertility specialist, I find yeah. so many of them yeah. were not told that they're at risk for low milk production. And it's another sign that, I mean, obviously we know there needs to be more education for OBs regarding breastfeeding, but adult endocrinologists 
I've had patients who came to see me after they said I was, you know, had trouble with my first baby before I had a second. I made an appointment with an endocrinologist for, you know, three months. I waited for the appointment. The week beforehand, the doctor canceled the appointment because they don't do that. When that sort of came to their attention, that that was what the patient was coming for. Wow. Interesting. So one other thing, just one last thing I want to mention is that, um, you know, I think in the lactation world, we talk a lot about how breastfeeding is so important to prevent breast cancer. And if a woman is asked to wean for some reason, like, uh, for example, let's say she has a breast mass, she needs a lumpectomy, um, the mother says, no, I don't want to do that right now. I want to continue to breastfeed. You know, like, let's say she's told to wean for whatever reason. And then she has a lactation consultant or a breastfeeding medicine specialist who weighs in saying, no, you should just keep breastfeeding because that would actually help. It'll help your breast cancer um, diagnosis, your, your prognosis. You should just keep, don't worry about it. That's not a thing at this point, right? I mean, we need to address the fact that this woman has cancer and that the protective nature of breastfeeding in that situation when someone's already diagnosed is not something that really should weigh in, you know, other than like you had mentioned, uh, preventing ovulation, um, which would help to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. But the longer duration of breastfeeding and holding off on therapies or being less aggressive with that, with that cancer in order to allow someone to breastfeed longer is probably not uh, evidence-based. Correct. And actually, perhaps the opposite, given that we know that postpartum breast cancers tend to be more aggressive, even, you know, match stage for stage to non-postpartum breast cancers. So if anything, you should err on the side of more aggressive breast cancer treatment for those patients, definitely not delayed or less aggressive. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I think the way to understand the reduction in breast cancer risk that comes with breastfeeding is a crossover effect. So if you have all of your kids young and you breastfeed them all for an extended period of time and then you stop breastfeeding, you know, at the age of 30 and then as your breast cancer risk starts to increase in your 40s as you get older, that um, initial increased transient increased risk of breast cancer in the postpartum period crosses over to a protective effect later in life. Hmm. But then during that time period, there's an increased risk. Would you say particularly if that pregnancy associated breast cancer period of time is in an older woman versus a younger woman? Right. I mean, that's why the, that's why we know that if you have your first baby after the age of 35, your risk of breast cancer is permanently increased compared to if you had never had a baby at all. I see. So that's related to the fact that you have that transient increased risk for, you know, five up to 10, up to possibly even 20 years Mm. in that postpartum state before it crosses over into a protective effect down the road. But the, the point is you're older when you're getting that transient increased risk and then older when you're finally getting the protection versus, you know, having all your babies from the age of 20 to 30. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I don't think that we really dig deeply into that topic when we talk about the protective nature of breastfeeding um, and regarding breast cancer. So, All of yeah. us older physician moms need to just cover our ears during this part of the <laughs> podcast because... <Yeah. laughs> 
Yes. It can make you crazy. Yeah. When you think think too hard about it. But that's when I tell, you know, when I, you know, feel squirrely myself or have been reading too much of, you know, the, this postpartum breast cancer literature or talking to other physicians that that's the reason why you get your screening is to detect things early. So this is why the screening is so important in the 40 to 49 year old age group, because you want to see something on a mammogram or an ultrasound before you actually feel it. Yeah. 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 I think after talking to you, after getting to know you, Katrina, and and having a better understanding about imaging, um, so many of my patients are leery about having screening early because they feel like, oh, you know, because I think the um, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, when they put out their recommendations for breast cancer screening, they said, oh, you're just going to find incidental things that are not going to matter, and they may just go away. And I'm like, what goes away? Like, DCIS, <laughs> like, you're going to really ignore that. And so um, I really encourage, especially with tomosynthesis, computer-aided diagnosis, that just get it done, get it done early, you know, start at 40 this is really good. And I do feel like in my practice with the use of tomosynthesis, that the breast cancers that we're diagnosing now in our, in our practice are much earlier. They're just getting like their hormone therapy. They're not needing much of anything, maybe, you know, a small surgery and they're doing so much better than the whole, you know, awful chemotherapy, radiation, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I think part of this goes to what patients we see, right? Depending on our what our practice population is. And I think about the patients that I send from breastfeeding medicine clinic for imaging because they have masses that I find suspicious. I haven't actually diagnosed anybody with breast cancer yet. And certainly some young women who go for biopsy have, you know, benign tumors that then they did get a more invasive procedure based on having earlier screening, or maybe it's not screening if they actually, you know, they had a mass. Um, Sometimes I find women who have, you know, had like very aggressive breast massage on a plug duct and it turned into this very, you know, prolonged palpable mass that ended up getting biopsied because the way it looked on imaging but they didn't develop a fistula. They, you know, they didn't have a negative outcome and we made sure they didn't have cancer. And so Mm -hmm. I also think that knowing that, yeah, these women in this age group should be getting their screening. If they have something, they should be getting imaging and worked up is the main message that I have learned from being around you guys. And I think these guidelines are going to help a lot of people to understand the benefits. Yeah. And I think, I think hearing all this too, um, like Katrina, you had mentioned the patient who you interacted with, who, um, was going to do, was going to have induced lactation, you found a cancer. Um, how we should really, like when we're seeing people, we should do a breast exam. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Any, um, everyone needs a breast exam. People need to have a breast exam during pregnancy. People need to have breast exams when they're um, coming for lactation visits. I mean, I don't know how, how everyone else deals with it in their clinic, but all of my patients, literally every single patient is in a gown. 
Um, and that's just the nature of being a surgeon, I guess, that, you know, we're seeing so many post-op patients or wounds or, you know, counseling about um, surgery. And But all the lactation patients, just so everyone knows, like, this is part of it. You're not just, like, pulling up your shirt and looking at the nipple. You you need to just do an exam. Do a full um, exam. Yeah. And so then do we, so then we should also be encouraging OBGYN, like when they're seeing these women throughout their pregnancy, that they should probably have a breast exam at every trimester, don't you think? Yeah. And we don't talk about that because they have a risk of breast cancer. Yeah. 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 And when you look through the, um, the guidelines for screening for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, I think that's for ACOG, it's, um, addressing it in every trimester. And so why are we not, you know, if the uterus is growing and that's going to be part of a, um, you know, part of the baby, um, why you're not addressing the other aspects of, of reproduction as well. Yeah. 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 It's really good. Yeah. Well, great conversation. I know, uh, Katrina, you need to run, you have some glitzy surgery thing to attend. <laughs> Surgery graduation. It's a huge milestone. It's it's nice that we have low enough COVID numbers here. We're we're fortunate that the surgery residents were going to have a very last minute graduation for them. Well, good for them. I'm sure they're really pleased about that after such a long, large number of long number of years of training. Yes, it uh, is. Yeah, I imagine you'll get your steak well done. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And on, on that note, Helen, we should also congratulate Helen. Um, a future breast surgeon managed to win the best trauma and surgical ICU resident of the year award. Oh in my her graduation, Sarah. I, I don't, you guys didn't have an official ceremony or did you, Helen? I can't remember. No, it was online. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Very nice. That's, that's, that's quite a bit. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll talk to you later. I'll talk to you later, Karen. We'll have another great topic uh, next month. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at laughted.org. We have other educational projects, including the clinical question of the week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.